All right. Well, on January 4th in 2010, it was a red-letter date, a date to remember in history because that was the day that one man, for the third time, won the ultimate couch potato award. (laughs) There really is such a thing, just so you know. They hold the ultimate couch potato contest at the ESPN Zone in Chicago on New Year's Day. And they do that because it's the height of sports television, right? It is the day that, you know, like, I don't know, the sports junkies can just sit there and go comatose on uh, TV. Well, here's how the contest works. The rules are actually very simple. You sit in the provided recliner and you watch TV. (laughs) That's it. And you watch TV there, sports, for as long as you possibly can. And they have a 13 by 16 foot screen for you to watch from your recliner, which is really 12 42 inch plasmas that are blasting sports 24 seven, okay? And the contestants sit there just to watch TV, okay? There's very few rules. You can actually eat and drink whatever you want, except alcohol, not allowed to have alcohol, but there's a stipulation. You only get one bathroom break every eight hours. Okay, so you have to actually think about what's going into your body, right? And by the way, there is no adult diapers, no bedpans. Contestants are forced to actually sit there until the eight hour time goes by. So they have to be conscious of this. Now, um, the law, believe it or not, mandates that they be given a five minute stretch break every hour. Okay, so they're allowed to get up once an hour to stretch for five minutes and then sit back down in the recliner and go back to watching sports on TV. They're not allowed to do anything else though. They can't sleep, right? They can't um, do uh, work. They can't talk on their cell phone. They can't text. They can't do anything but watch sports on TV. Now, that day, January 4th, 2010, this guy who won it for the third time, his name was Jeff Miller, okay? Now, I just want to tell you what Jeff Miller did. He sat down in that chair, and he watched TV without stopping. Okay, think back for yourself to yesterday morning. He did not watch TV for 24 hours. That yesterday morning, when you got up to prepare yourself to drive here, that's not when he started watching TV. He didn't start watching TV on Thursday morning either. The day you got up, took your kids to school, were thinking about Awana that night, you're going to go to Thrive, you're you know, thinking through. That's 48 hours. No, he didn't watch TV for 48 hours without stopping. Think back to Wednesday morning, 72 hours. You got up Wednesday morning, got dressed, went to work, maybe got your kids to work, were thinking about going to abide that night or taking your kids to the narrow, going to your fellowship, your fellowship for Bible study. Think of it. That's when this man sat down in that chair and watched TV, 72 straight hours. He beat his own record, by the way, by 33 hours. January 4th, 2010. Wow, the ultimate couch potato. Yes. Well, what do you think he gets? Okay, think about this. What do you think he gets for winning? Of course! He gets a recliner. He gets his brand new recliner. He also gets $1,000 credit for um, a new TV. He gets free satellite and cable for a year. He gets $1,000 of ESPN Zone credit. And uh, he gets a trophy 
with a spud. The couch potato spud trophy, which by the way, remember I said he'd won three years in a row? There he goes. He's got his three years in a row. Yeah, his spud got a little better. Maybe because it's moldy over time. It's shrinking just like all the rest of us, right? There's the new one. Okay, Jeff Miller. Jeff Miller is quite the guy. Now, wait, wait. You got to listen to what his girlfriend, how his girlfriend describes him. She says, he's driven in everything he does. <laughs> okay. She, his friend says, you know, um, most people have no idea what it takes to win this. They don't under understand the endurance that it takes to stay awake and to control your bodily functions. He is uniquely qualified. He is an expert. That's what they said. Who are these people and what planet do you live on, right? 72 straight hours sports TV, except for the eight-hour bathroom break. That's, that's it. Well, I've got news for you, Jeff. Had you used your determination, unique skill, and endurance on something that mattered, you might have made a difference in the world in those 72 hours. If you've looked at our title today, you know that we're going to be talking about how not to be the ultimate couch potato, right? We want you to be exactly the opposite of the ultimate couch potato. We want you to learn to work hard and do your tasks well for the Lord, just like Ruth did. Ruth is our example. She's an amazing example. She did her work well. She did her tasks well. She didn't mindlessly watch images go across a screen. No, she made decisions that mattered. She, she worked on things that would count, things that would please the Lord, things that were important. Those are the kinds of choices she made, and she's going to encourage us to do the same, to spend our days for things that matter, to make choices and to have priorities that will make a difference, that will count. Because when we get to the other side, we don't want to have the ultimate couch potato be our trophy, right? We would much rather hear from his lips, well done, good and faithful servant, right? That's what we want. Okay, but I have to stop for a second, because for the record, I just have to say this to everybody. If you make me speak on work ethic for a third retreat in a row next year, you're in trouble, <laughs> Stephanie Schwartz. This is year number two, if you're keeping track on Saturday morning's work ethic teaching. Um, if you ask me to do it again next year, I'm going to politely decline. Okay? It's like asking somebody to work on patience or words. Let's work on work, okay? Now, this is something I actually pridefully thought that I had under control last year. Nope. <laughs> this year got even worse. Double thumbs down for this year. Um, all that to say, even for you type A's who think you've got everything together, I can promise you that Ruth has something to teach you. And so does God. Okay? About making the most of your time. About maximizing your labor to make a difference for the king in the hours that he's given you. Well, if you're not already there, I would ask you to turn to Ruth 2. And I'm going to ask you not to use your program. You can use it another time. But right now, you're going to need... No, no, no. I want you to use your program, but just for notes. Okay? I want you to actually open your Bible, because you're going to need them both open at the same time. So open your device or your paper Bible or something, because you're going to have a really hard time going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, if you haven't noticed already from Stephanie's teaching, I'm just going to lay it right out to you. 
Just put yourself in our shoes for a second, teaching a narrative like this. Yeah. Like, how, how does that work? You know, before we could go, okay, verse one and two is about this. Verse three and four is about this, right? This is like everywhere. This is like buckshot, okay? Yeah. So you need to open up the Bible so we can go here, 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 here. That would be a, a great favor to us to see how this all, the mosaic comes together from all the little pieces. So you need your Bible open, and we're gonna look at it, the 30,000 foot view, just like Stephanie did last night, except I'm gonna stop for commentary. So, <laughs> all right, we're gonna start in verse one, chapter two, verse one. It says, now Ruth had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Boaz described her as a worthy man. That means diligent, that means, or sorry, valiant and mighty. It is, it's the worthy, the word worthy means valiant and mighty. It's the same word that is used to describe Ruth in the very next chapter when Boaz is describing her good reputation in town and he says she's a worthy woman. It's also the word excellent in Proverbs. You know all those verses about excellent wife? Even the ones we discussed last year? Same word, worthy. That's the word used now to describe Boaz in the first verse. Okay, verse two. Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to him, her go, my daughter. Now we're never told why Naomi doesn't go to work. But Ruth asked permission and then she goes. Verse three, she sets out, she went. She gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. She happened to come. You know, that's code for sovereignty of God, right? <laughs> you know, he led her there like he led the Magi, like he led Jonah, like he led Abraham, like he led all these different people, sovereignly led her there. But I want you to realize that these farms were like gigantic community farms. There was no borders. There was no lines. There was nothing to mark property lines. It was like looking at a gigantic patchwork quilt or even this rug from up above and seeing this whole thing. And somehow God remarkably got her to the spot that Boaz owned, okay? <coughs> Verse four. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the, the Lord or Yahweh be with you. And they answered, Yahweh bless you. He tells his workers that he hopes that God will bless them because this guy is into God, not just when he's at church. Now he's on the job and what's he talking about with his workers? May the Lord bless you. That's the kind of guy this guy is. Verse five. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers. Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back from Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Boaz is going out to check things at his property and he notices a gal he doesn't recognize. He finds out that she's the daughter-in-law of Naomi who came back with her. He's told that she's asked permission to glean and that she's been at it since sunrise, okay? Deuteronomy 24:19 forbids anyone um, from reaping all of their grain, any of the farm owners, from reaping all of their grain all the way to the edges of their field and going back and forth till there's no scraps left. Deuteronomy 24:19 says you can't do that. You can't take every scrap because something needs to be left for the poor, for those who don't have as much as others. It's kind of their social security system, okay? You get to go if you don't have food and go into someone else's fields, no question asked, and take that, okay? Verse eight, 
Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that you are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now Boaz goes above and beyond. He says, Don't go anywhere else. Stay with my girls. Drink my water. You're going to be safe here. And even though it was foreigners and women normally that went and gathered the water, he says, You don't have to do that. You can use ours. Okay? Verse 10, then she fell on her face, she bowed to the ground, and she said it to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She falls to the ground. She knows who she is. She knows who he is. He's a powerful leader in the community. She's a second-class citizen. She can't believe he would even speak to her, let alone tell her she can have all this good stuff. Verse 11, he explains why. All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Yahweh repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He says he knows what she's done, what she's given up and how she sought refuge with God and he's gonna take care of her. She's blown away in verse 13. She says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. She gets that she's nothing. In fact, she keeps calling herself a servant over and over this chapter. And she tells Boaz just what an encouragement his kindness has been to her. Then later on at lunch, after they've worked for a while, he calls her over again. And in verse 14, he says, come here, eat some bread. Dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her the roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Boaz feeds her and gives her the kind of food that she's not used to having. As a poor person, she would never have had the delicacies that he's describing here. Maybe it was hummus and pita bread and vinegar dipping sauce. I don't know, but it was something great. And she doesn't just scarf it, right? She keeps the leftovers. Verse 15 continues. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. He knows it's his responsibility to feed the poor, but he does even more. He tells his workers to grab extra grain out of the bundles that have already been tied up like they're on the truck ready to go. He says, take that out and spread it around for her. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening and then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. She had done this for a whole day and then she goes to the threshing floor and she beats out that grain out of that big long stalk, which basically means hitting it with a hammer. And this is after she's been in the baking sun for hours, probably 12 hours in the baking sun. She's doing that when she's done an ephah, Tana said was 90 cups. Well, it's 30 to 40 pounds, like that's a lot. Think of a dog food bag that you're trying to bring in from the trunk, okay? Now, I want you to know, though, and understand that commentators tell us that a man who would glean in a field like she had for a day would usually gather one to two pounds from the scraps. She gathered, carried up, beat out 30 to 40 pounds because of Boaz's generosity to her. One to two pounds, what a man could do was enough to feed a man for one day. This was enough to feed these two women for weeks. Verse 18 says, she took it up and she went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned 
She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Because obviously something had happened, right? She's bringing the dog food in, right? Something happened. Verse 19, she continues. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and she said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by Yahweh, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. Ruth says, I went to Boaz, and Naomi says, may God bless him. He's our family. Verse 21, and Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my, by my young men until they are finished, all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter, and that's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. She kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So Ruth stays and she's protected, which shows just how bad things have gotten in the time of the judges if both Naomi and Boaz are telling her, stay with my men so you'll be protected. And this shows you how bad it is in that time. She stays in through the barley and the wheat harvest, which was March through July, four to five months of this lifestyle every day, seven days a week. Well, six probably for the Sabbath, but... Well, this gal, she's obviously a very hard worker, right? Can you see that? I hope you could see that. Even though it was buckshot, I hope you could see that. Um, we're going to try to tackle what our work is at school, at home, in our jobs, in our ministries, and see what her hard work can teach us about our hard work. But what I notice about her is she's not just a, she's not just a person who works hard. She's a hard worker, I see both. Don't you see both? She's a person who does tasks well, but she's also a person who works well for others. And from that is where I'm going to get two gigantic points, one and two, are going to fall in those two points. One is going to be all about the tasks that she does. One is going to be all about the people that she serves. That's going to be point one and point two, right? Okay. And under each one, as you can see from your notes, we're going to get three characteristics about that kind of working hard, okay? That we can go home and start applying today. I, I guarantee it. <laughs> I guarantee it. All right. And I had to come up with different words and different synonyms and different illustrations. All right, let's do it. Okay. One more time, yes. Ruth worked hard doing the things that God called her to, the tasks, the stuff. That's where we're going to go in the first point. How does she do her daily to-do list, okay? And how can we, what can we learn about our to-do list from that? We're going to write point number one like this. Point number one in our quest for a good work ethic is to work hard for the Lord. Work hard for the Lord. Sounds simple. Work hard for the Lord. Each one of us has a bunch of tasks to do, has a bunch of stuff to do, has assignments that God has given you that the person next to you does not have, neither does the person down the row. You have an assignment from God, you're supposed to do it for him. Well, the first thing that I see Ruth doing shows up in verse two and three. This is why you need your Bible open. Verse two and three, it says, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain. Verse three says, she set out, she went, she gleaned in the field. Ruth and Naomi, they had no food, they had no money. So what's the first order of business? Get some, okay? Ruth does not sit there. She does not 
whine, cry, blame someone else, she gets up and she gets to work. She's not trying to get somebody else to do it for her, okay? That's what I see her do first, and that leads me to the first thing we need to do, letter A is be proactive. Be proactive. Ruth does not sit there. Instead, she makes a plan, she gets permission, and she goes for it. Listen, she, she, doesn't, she doesn't have any idea where she's going to go to work that day. She's not a local. She has no contacts. She has no leads. All she knows is, I got to go get a job or we're not going to eat, okay? So she walks out the door not even knowing where she's going to go. But she's going to get to work. She's not going to sit there any longer. She's going to initiate. That's what the word proactive means, initiate. We find her initiating later with Boaz when she walks up to the foreman and asks permission to glean there. She is proactive. She initiates. She doesn't wait to be asked. For each one of these subpoints, I'm going to give you one biblical passage because I think these thoughts are all over our Bible and we need to grab onto a passage. The one that drives this one home, and there's many for all of them, but the one I picked is Proverbs 10.5. Proverbs 10.5 says, he who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. We've got to be proactive. We've got to initiate, ladies. To work hard for God to do what he's called us to do, we initiate, we think, we plan, we make lists of steps, and we get out there and we do it. One simple way that I do the proactive thing is menu planning. <laughs> menu planning. Now, you know, um, we all know what it feels like to work a really long day, whatever it is that your life entails. You're working hard and you realize it's five o'clock. Oh, I have no idea what we're doing for dinner. I don't care if you're married or single. What are you going to feed yourself, right? You have no plan. You have no thought. It takes very, very little initiative and you'll never have that problem again, okay? I'll tell you how I do it. Super, super simple. I've told you before I am not a good cook. I am not a good cook. I make a few things with help from the grocery store, and that's it. But I also am married to a man who's very simple. He may not seem simple to you, but um, when it comes to food, he's very simple. He's not adventurous. So that's great for a person who's not a good cook. Because one day I sat him down and I said, could you just tell me the things that you like best that I can actually make? <laughs> right? And if I do t attempt something new and it doesn't turn out, all I get is a thank you, honey. And I'm like, that's off the list. I mean, I hate, I, I hate cooking. Can I just be honest? I do not like it. It's a lot of work and it takes longer to clean up than to make it. And it takes longer to clean up than the people are sitting at your table. Uh, so anyway, he picks the top 10 things he likes. So guess what I do? I rotate through those top 10 things and it takes, because we're all so busy, we're only actually home, sitting down, eating maybe twice a week, right? So two of those meals a week is plenty, which takes you through a whole month with the top 10 things. I do not have to reinvent the wheel. I just need to make what he likes so that I can be a refuge to my husband. He doesn't want, you know, basil lemon infused pork chops. He doesn't care. <laughs> Sloppy Joes are just fine and I'm happy with that. It's on the list. Just ask Alexandra. She comes for family dinner. And... Um, so I make those and I put them on our um, 
shared calendar, so he always knows what the meals are during the week. He doesn't have to go, what's the plan? It says, Tuesday, just says, sloppy joes. And uh, then when I go to the store, I only buy for those two meals. You know, with produce and whatever you buy. But you only buy for those two meals. Do you see how just a tiny bit of initiative can make you never have that thought of, oh, ever again about what you're going to fix? Another thing that has revolutionized my life, it's like my own personal little miracle, proactive, is um, having my dry cleaning picked up and delivered. <laughs> Did you know that most places don't charge for that? I had no idea. I mean, for years, I have been trucking his dry cleaning over there. I'm picking it back up, and I love him, but I didn't always get it done on a weekly basis. I, I mean, I, I tried, but it didn't, didn't always happen. Sometimes I drove around with it for a while, and it was always such a failure when it was like, did you get that stuff from the dry cleaner? You know you know what that feels like, right? They will pick it up and deliver it to you, no extra charge. It takes 10 minutes of initiative to actually walk in there and tell them that's what you want. <laughs> but your own little miracle will show up at your door. It's so awesome. Ruth just did this. Gail Jeffcoat's the one who threw me over the edge. I'll give all credit to her. Okay. There are lots of ways to be proactive in your job, in your homework, in your home, in your marriage with your kids, in your ministry. You procrastinators, pick one small thing. Go pre proactive with one thing. Get the ball rolling. You make a plan, you start making steps, you get one thing. You get farther than if you never made a plan. Okay, next quality of a good work ethic is found in verse seven. This is where Boaz's foreman says that she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then we see her do the same thing after she eats lunch. It says she immediately, in verse 15, it says she rose to glean. In other words, she does not linger should not linger. If we want to work hard, we need to let her be, be tireless. Be tireless. <sighs> Ruth worked hard, and then she worked hard some more. I mean, I think you saw that when we were reading her story. She was a hard, hard worker. As my husband says, she rests so she can get back to work. That's the purpose of rest, to rejuvenate so you can get back to work. It was God's plan all along. Back in the garden, he said, we're going to work for six days, and we're going to take one day of rest. We are the ones who have made leisure an art form. You realize that. It's the last hundred years. Did you know that? We are the ones who made a five-day work week. Until the last hundred years, people through all generations have always had six-day work weeks or seven-day work weeks. We've made it five. We did that around the time of the um, Industrial Revolution when people moved from farms, which were seven days a week work, right? Think of it. You had cows. You had farming. You did what you did. You moved to the towns. You started working in factories. People started complaining. Started complaining they weren't seeing their families. So the factory said, okay, we'll give you a day off. Instead of seven days a week, we'll give you a day off. Well, Christians wanted Sundays. Jews wanted Saturdays. That's why you have two. There's no other reason. And it only happened 100 years ago. Our predecessors worked far harder than we ever have. Far harder. We should not be living for the weekend, ladies. We rest so we can work. Another place we see Ruth doing this tireless thing is verse 17. 
It says she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was an ephah of barley. It means after she spent that long day, she kept working till all the work was done. Then she walked home. Then she cared for her mother-in-law. Then she slept for a few hours. If you think she slept for eight hours, you're probably sadly mistaken. <laughs> I know some of us like cling to that, like that is Life, eight hours. Tr trust me, ladies, it's not, it's not. You can survive on far less. And many of you do. Many of you do. She was tireless. She kept working. She started all over again the next day at dawn and did the same thing again. There's so many verses I could pick for this, but I had to go back to P31, baby. P31, Proverbs 31, 27, says she looked well to the ways of her household. She did not eat the bread of idleness. No matter what the task, we need to give it our all. We need to stop doing a half, you know, halfway effort. We need to declare war on the laziness in our lives. Obviously, some tasks are harder than others. And some are, you know, less desirable than others. Let's just be honest. That's just the way life is. So what I used to do when my kids were little is we'd sit down with a post-it note. Yes, even they were subjected to them. And they would write down their homework assignments. What are your homework assignments today? We'd write it on a post-it note. And then we'd leave a little spot next to it where they could write numbers. One to four, whatever. One was always the hardest, and it's always the thing we tackled first. Tireless workers, they tackle things that are hard and they get them done. We would work on it for 50 minutes, five zero, and we'd take a 10 minute break every hour from the time my kids were in kindergarten, like all the way up. Okay, maybe they were a 30, you know, 2010 when they were in kindergarten, but that was the pattern. You know, we're going to do the hardest thing first. I still do that. I write things on a post-it note and I do the hardest thing first and I, I put breaks in there because that keeps me going, right? That's the kind of thing tireless workers do. Don't forget you moms, you're modeling before your kids every single day. They will be tireless workers or they won't. Primarily because of you. Primarily because they're watching you every day. Tireless workers are going to grow tireless workers in their homes. It reminds me of this great story I heard of this man who used to make his sons go out and work in his cornfield every day. All of their friends were doing like the whole, uh, let's go to the fishing hole, let's go to the swimming hole. And every day in the afternoon, these boys would be working in the cornfields. And somebody came to this man and basically reprimanded him and said to him, why do you make those boys work so hard? You don't need all that corn. He said, because I'm not raising corn. <laughs> he said, I'm raising sons. That's why I make him work so hard, because I'm raising sons. Yeah, we need to be tireless, tireless workers, and we need to raise tireless workers if you still have influence over the children in your home. But even tireless workers cannot do everything. Even you type A's out there that have a list that's 20 long and you're like feel accomplished when you've accomplished all 20 in one day. You can't do everything well either. So part of my talking to you in this point is to back up. Some of you tireless workers are trying to spin too many plates and you're trying to please far too many people. And some of you are doing things, frankly, that won't matter a year from now, let alone 100. If we get all this 100 years from now, a lot of us are doing things that won't matter next week with our hours, okay? So we need to back up just a tiny bit and think about why you're doing what you're doing. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are those things on your list? I know you think they can't ever be taken from your list, but why are you doing them? Um, 
you're going to need to, some of us, sit down and have a heart-to-heart with God, with our husbands, and with ourselves, and making sure that we're doing the right stuff. So what should the right stuff be? I can't leave you hanging on this. If you're a Christian, the first right thing you have to do is you have to know God's word, and you have to talk to him every single day. It's more important than anything else you do, and it's a non-negotiable. It's more important than having a homemade meal. It's more important than having a shower, ladies. If you're not doing that every day, you're not doing God's to-do list for you. Sorry to be so harsh, but it's true. If you're a real Christian, that's your number one non-negotiable thing. There's others. If you're a real Christian, you have to go to church. You have to. It's a non-negotiable. You have to share your faith. You have to obey the Bible. And you have to use your gifts to serve in the body of Christ. Every one of those things is a non-negotiable you should be doing all the time, regularly. Those are non-negotiables. How many here have a husband? Raise your hand, you got a husband. Okay, every one of you, you have to love your husband. You have to. It's a requirement. And that passage, Titus 2, by the way, that says love your husband, it's not agape. Did you know it's phileo, friendship, affection, love? You have to like your husband. Which means that you need to keep liking him today. You need to date him, you need to please him, you need to pray for him, you need to be intimate with him. You need to make your home a refuge and an orderly place for him. Those are all non-negotiables because that's part of liking your husband. Hmm. Okay. How many have kids still in your home? Okay, great. You gotta keep them alive. (laughs) There's only really one other responsibility. And it's a twofold, but it's only one other responsibility besides keeping them alive. Correct and direct. That's it. Correct and direct. You got kids at home, that's your only job. Correct, direct. You're trying to tee the ball up so that someday they will submit to Christ and his leadership and let them leave your home as responsible adults who can actually fill in the blank, make themselves a meal, buy their own car insurance, be on time for work, whatever it is that makes them a responsible adult. It's your only job, correct, direct. Guess what's not on the list? Soccer. It isn't. Piano. Play dates. AP classes. None of those made the list. And yet, I bet you think those are non-negotiables. They're not. We've only talked about 10 things, basically, that are non-negotiables. Those are the things you should be doing every single week. If you can't do everything else, then it has to get cut out. But if you can do everything else, you're awesome. Go be a room mom. Go work outside your home. Go work out your body. Working out your body didn't make the non-negotiable list either. Okay? Now, we cut things out not so we can sit home and watch TV and be like Jeff Miller, ladies. We cut things out so that we can do what God called us to do and maximize our hours for him. That's where we're tireless. The next thing we see Ruth doing is having a good attitude about her work. 
Yes, there's a job to be done. Yes, of course there is. But she does her job with hope, with expectation, with optimism. From this, we get letter C, be positive. Be positive. It starts all the way in verse two, all the way up at the top. After it tells us that Ruth went out and took initiative, it says that she said to Naomi, I want to go work for someone who will grant me favor. That's optimism. She expected to find that person. She went out looking for the glass being half full, not half empty. She expected it, she was positive. We can also see her positive attitude when Boaz says to her in verse 12 that he's praying that God will repay her kindness. And she says in verse 13, I have found that favor from God because you have comforted me. You see, she's already crediting God with answering that prayer when she says that right there. She's looking at her job as an answer to prayer because God saw her and he gave her this job with Boaz. It's the first thing she thinks of. It's an evidence that God sees her and is helping her and she's got a good heart about it. She could easily have shared how hard she had it. Couldn't she have? She could have easily shared with you how her hands were bleeding and her muscles were so sore. She could have shared all that, but she didn't. She saw that God had taken care of her and she was thankful for that. Well, I think the best passage for this one is Philippians 2.14. Philippians 2.14, you've heard it before. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. All things. That means your housework, your disciplining of your children, having to get up early to get to work. Whatever it is, do all things without grumbling and disputing, it says. We need to keep getting our cues from this eager worker, Ruth, and even rejoice in the work that God's given us. So how do we stay positive about our work? It's simple, it's really, really simple. You talk it up instead of talking it down, right? You talk it up, talk your work up. Excitedly share what God is having you do with your day instead of telling us how horrible you have it, how exhausted you are, how overworked, how unfair it is. We're so much quicker to exaggerate how hard we have it and how life has just treated us wrong. We're so quick to say that. That's not the way she talked. We need to stop complaining and be content. They say attitude is everything, and it really is. If you think something is going to be a drudgery, it will come true. <laughs> and on the other hand, if you think something's going to be easy, you're going to be done with it lickety-split, guess what happens? And even if it isn't that easy, you get through it somehow because your attitude is good. Yes, work is hard. It makes us sweat. But so much good happens from expending your body and your mind to accomplish things. Remember, God gave Adam a job before sin came into the world. He told him to name the animals. He told him to tend the garden. And there was dignity in the work that he was given to do. So let's be sure to model that kind of heart before the people that are watching us, whether it's your coworkers, your small group people, your children, your husband. Have that positive kind of attitude about the task God has given you to do. Pass on a desire to do good to others. Um, teach your kids to work and find satisfaction in a job well done. Even if it's, you know, sorting the forks and spoons out of the dishwasher or putting pairs of socks together or clearing the table. Teach them that there's satisfaction in doing a job. Encourage them to do their job with all their hearts without bad-mouthing it. But they're going to learn to not do that from you, or they're going to learn to do that from you. Don't let them bad-mouth their work or their homework. 
And please don't complain about your ministry. Don't complain about your ministry. You have a chance to, to serve the God who created you, the God who saved you, the God who redeemed you. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to push chairs around for him. It's a privilege to serve him. Don't complain about it. God wants us to serve him with gladness, Psalm 100 says. A man I read about that I thought totally showed this was a man whose name was Reuben Pardo. And Reuben Pardo was an elevator operator, and he worked in that Art Deco building on Wilshire Boulevard in L.A. for, get this, 35 years as an elevator operator. <sighs> Beautiful elevator, but still, not much square footage, right? All the guy did was take people up and down, up and down and down, up and down for 35 straight years. But the people that he took up and down, they always talked about how he greeted them with a smile and a good attitude. You know, there was no opportunity for promotion in his job. <laughs> and yet he did it with joy. He did it with joy. He, um, he moved to the United States from Mexico City when he was seven, and he worked hard all of his life. He painted garages, he shoveled snow, he operated elevators till he got that good gig in downtown LA. Some, finally, he was able to support himself and his wife. He worked six days a week and rarely took time off, and every Sunday he took his wife out to tell her thank you. This is how one of the people described one of the young millennials that he used to take up and down up to their fancy offices, penthouse offices. This is how they described him. He said he's like a glass of fresh water every morning. I don't know how he does it. But every day for him just seems to be a bright new opportunity. When I grow up, I want to be Reuben Pardo. I want to be a fresh glass of water to everyone who pass, crosses paths with me. Well, she worked hard on her tasks. But she also was a hard worker for others. And uh, she was a good employee, she was a good wife, she was a good mom, just to use our vernacular here, right? People could count on her, that's where we're gonna go next. So in point number two, we're gonna say we need to work hard for the good of others. Work hard for the good of others. It's one thing to work hard for yourself or God, it's another to be someone that others can count on and that they want you to be a part of their team because you're a good team member, you're a good employee. And uh, we also have three characteristics here and the first one I think is probably the hardest, honestly, and it's letter A, be deferential. Be deferential. Ruth was deferential. <sighs> deferential means to respectfully submit or yield to the opinion and judgment of someone else. I'll say it again. Deferential means to respectfully submit to or yield to the judgment or opinion of someone else. This is being flexible, being compliant, if you'd rather have it in one word, and deferential is too, I don't know, mind-twisting for you. Being flexible, we all get what that means. The first time we see Ruth display this is in verse two, when she approaches Ruth, or excuse me, Naomi, just to ask permission to get to work. She doesn't insist, she asks. She sees Naomi as her leader, and she follows her direction. She goes and states her desire clearly of her leader. 
Later on, she does the same kind of thing with Boaz. Boaz says to her, listen, my daughter, and we're thinking, oh, listen, my daughter, that's so sweet. It doesn't mean have the, you know, ears in your your bones in your ear rattle. Listen, my daughter, means listen up and pay attention and do this. I didn't say he said it meanly, but he said listen up and do this, and she does. Later he says, stay in my field, go with my girls, drink my water, and again, she does it. She does not say, oh, you don't have to do that. (laughs) She does not say, I can get my own. She does not say, oh, I have a different idea about this. Mm. She doesn't say any of those things because she's deferential and she yields her will to someone else's. If you've got more than one child or more than one gal in your small group or more than one employee that you work with or more than one friend, you know how nice it is to be surrounded by people who are flexible. And you know how the one who isn't stands out like a sore thumb, right? You know how hard it is to work with that one that just won't get with the program. Do you really want to be that one? (laughs) I don't. Woo! Ruth accepted Naomi's plan. She accepted Boaz's plan. She deferred and she let her desires go. Colossians 3.22 is the perfect verse for this one. Colossians 3.22. It says bond servants or employees... Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. If you want to be a worker that pleases God and works well for others, you need to obey those that God has placed over you. You need to defer to their leadership and their direction in your life. And honestly, for women, this is getting harder and harder and harder for us. Whether it's our culture or, frankly, our mothers, or our flesh. We've been taught, we're women. We can do better than anybody. We know better than anybody. Well, Eve thought so too. (laughs) Frankly, she got us into a lot of trouble because that was exactly her attitude. Occasionally, we do know better. But that's not the point. The point isn't who's right. The point is to defer to those that God has placed over us as authorities. It's what God wants us to do. We're honoring him in this. And you say, yeah, but my authorities, they're wrong. (laughs) Okay, well, it's valid, but it's a valid point that Peter addresses in 1 Peter 2.18. In 1 Peter 2.18, he says we're supposed to submit with respect even to the authorities in our lives that are unjust. That's 1 Peter 2.18. I didn't say the authority in your life that says you have to sin. That's where we draw the line. If our authority says you have to sin, you don't, okay? Most of us aren't being asked to sin. We're just being asked to do things that we don't want to do or that we think we know better than them, okay? So don't question, don't critique, don't give your two cents until your leader finally caves because you're unleadable, frankly. They're tired. They just forget it. I, I, I just can't, I can't have the effort anymore. I gotta move on, because this person is unleadable. They won't listen to me. And they'll throw their hands up and they'll give up. So whether it's at your home or your job or in your small group or your friend circle, don't be the person that everyone has to convince 
Why would you want that kind of reputation? Don't be the person everybody has to convince to go along with it. Because you know, ladies, the email does not have to be worded that way. There's more than one way to email someone. Your kids do not have to be in bed asleep at one precise moment every single day. You don't have to go there on vacation. And you don't even have to use that electrician that you would prefer to use. It's not that important. I read about a group of men that I thought really got this be deferential. They were men that were working in the coal mines in World War II in Great Britain. And uh, the coal mines, it was, you know, think about it, hard, stinky job, under the ground, dirty, dusty, you know, breathing issues, all that. But during World War II, the coal miners, their work powered the factories that made the planes and the jeeps and the tanks and made the war effort possible. And all of a sudden, the coal workers got fed up and they started leaving the coal mines in droves, getting out of there. They said, we're tired of this. It's a thankless job and we want to be out on the front lines with everybody else. Where well, Winston Churchill heard of this and he went rushing down there and he gathered thousands of them together to try to talk to them and share with them the importance of their contribution to the war effort. He told them that at the end of the war they were going to have a gigantic parade all throughout the streets of London. He said the sailors will come first, then the pilots of the Royal Air Force, then the soldiers who fought at Dunkirk. And he said, finally, there'll be thousands of men, dusty, dirty, with coal miners' hats in their hands, walking through the streets of London. He said, at that point, the, sh the crowds will probably start shouting things like, where were these during the critical days of struggle? And he said, thousands of voices will respond. We were in the earth with our faces to the coal. There were tears in the eyes of these rough and tumble men with these coal mining hands and hats dust everywhere. There were tears in their eyes as they walked back down underground and got back to work to their thankless job because Winston Churchill and his powerful words persuaded them that the future of the war was literally in their hands and they deferred to his leadership and they went back to work. It's a beautiful story. I hope it reminds you to defer a little bit better. And it's the perfect way to segue to the next one because it's so exactly what those men did. And that's letter B, we need to be humble. Be humble. Those men were humble and did a thankless job and so was Ruth. She did what she was asked to do no matter how big, how small, no matter how hard, how, hard, how easy. Nothing was beneath her. Nothing was beneath her. She did whatever needed to be done. And she went and she... Um, did that hard job out in the baking sun of bending down and up, down and up, and inching down a row of grain. And she did it for hours. And then it, her job was basically to pick up single strands of grain that were on the ground. If you've ever dropped a box of toothpicks on the ground, <laughs> on a tile floor, no less, and I said, uh-uh-uh, no wipes, no paper towels, no vacuum. You could only pick up one at a time with your hands. You would have a slight bit of understanding of what Ruth must have had to do, picking up just one at a time over and over and over. It was really hard work. Nothing was beneath her, though. She humbly did that job. 
Now, unlike her story, most people did that up and down gleaning thing and they got very little for it, right? She happened to get a lot because God was gracious to her, but most men and women who did this only got a day's worth of food from doing that. Well, her humility also means that she refused to demand anything. She refused to demand her rights like women do today. She had no rights. She understood that. She called him Lord, Boaz Lord, and she called herself servant in the passage more than once. She knew her place, and um, she didn't ask questions. She didn't resist. At Compass, you will hear humility defined as not thinking less of yourself but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You just become a non-issue in the thought process. That's basically what it is. She gave Boaz and Ruth proper respect. She asked their permission. She fell before them. She did what they asked. She was humble. She was genuinely surprised that Boaz would talk to her, let alone be kind to her. She was genuinely surprised at that because she was so humble. She understood he was under no obligation to help her. She also showed her humility in that she accepted his help, which I think is unique and interesting. She accepted his help. She wasn't running out there, pulling herself up by her bootstraps. No, he piled on the favor and she took it. She let him care for her. She let him be the hero of the story. For this one... I picked Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Listen to it like you've never heard it before, okay? In humility, count others as better than yourself. Don't look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Or, in our words, think of yourself less. When it comes to our service and work, this should be a no-brainer. We work for them, and they're good, not ours. That's what it is to be a humble worker. Work for other people's good, not your own, whatever they ask. It's easier when it's our boss that we get to leave at work. (laughs) It's a lot harder if it's your parent and you're living with them or if it's your husband and you're living with them. Do it anyway, okay? Jesus is the ultimate example here. He was God and he laid it all down to be a human being because he was humble. He's our example, even if you think this is beneath you, okay? Give it your all. Cook that thing he wants you to cook. Tow that line with the kids that he wants you to tow. Do that presentation you think is useless and stupid and no one's ever going to want this product. Do it anyway. Serve the one you were called to serve. Think of them as more important than you. The other thing she did that I think we need to get better at is accepting somebody else's help. Accepting somebody else's help. That's what humility is about. She didn't push Boaz away saying, I can do this on my own. She took what he offered. She swallowed her pride. So the next time you have a procedure or a surgery or you have a loss of some kind and you find yourself at the receiving end of someone who's generously trying to help you, let them. Don't push them away. If, if they're offering, they want it. They want to help you. No one's got their, you know, their arm behind their back forcing them to help you. If they want to shop for you, take your kids, bring you a meal, let them. Let them. No one, no one should have to arm wrestle you to be kind to you. <laughs> we're not humble when we're doing that, ladies. And you might as well be taking your hand and sticking it in their pocket and pulling away the blessing of God from them. Because when you don't let them be kind to you, they, they don't get blessed by the Lord, then he's prompted them to do something for you. Okay? Get better at letting people be kind to you. Don't arm wrestle them. 
A last quality of good work for others is letter C, be generous. I notice her doing that. And of course, we could go on and on and on. And you're like, wow, it's been a long time already. Um, there's a lot of things Ruth did to be a good worker. She's generous at the beginning. She's generous in the middle. She's generous at the end. She's a generous gal. She gives away her hours and her comfort for the sake of someone else. She doesn't even eat her whole lunch. She doesn't even gorge herself so she can be generous to Naomi and stores it away for her. She doesn't go out to get a job for herself. She goes out to get a job for Naomi. God loves it when we do this. The verse for this one is Ephesians 4.28. It's probably one you're not familiar with. It's a good one. It says, let the thief, let the thief not, no longer, sorry, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with those in need. Work so you can do good and be generous to others. That's very direct. Yes, work is fulfilling. It's accomplishing things. It's pleasing the Lord. But in Ephesians 4.28, we are working so we can spread the goodness around. So how do you do this one? Well, the Bible says we're supposed to take what we have earned and give a portion of it from our paycheck or our husband's and be generous to the Lord with it. We're supposed to give back to God, to your local church. If you're not doing that, you're disobeying scripture. But you're also missing out on the blessing that God will give you if you obey him and you cheerfully give to him. If you don't know what to do, I'm happy to tell you there is a thriving marriage podcast this week that just dropped where Rick Talcott and the Kellys will tell you exactly how to do that better. So if you're not subscribed to that, make sure you do that. This week was so perfect. <laughs> if you don't know how to do that. But pray about and think about sacrificing things, foregoing that organic chip that you like or that pumpkin latte whatever or those cute shoes so that you can sacrifice to give to the Lord. Also, take it a step farther. Share from your wealth, your tangible things to give to someone who does not share the same address as you. When you give to your kids, you're giving to yourself. You do realize that, right? Because when they're happy, you're happy. That's not really generous. I mean, yes, it is generous in a sense, I guess, technically, but really, you're helping yourself there. You want to do something really others-oriented? Be that way to someone outside your home. In fact, Luke 6.35, Jesus says that it's even better if you're generous to people who can't give back to you. It's even, you'll be more blessed if you do that. So don't worry about being generous and no one appreciating it or paying you back. Think of Ruth on this one. I mean, if you've read the whole book, you know everybody saw how great Ruth was. Everybody, Boaz, the people in town, except who? Who didn't see how great Ruth was? Naomi, her mother-in-law. And guess what? She was the one that Ruth was pouring herself out for. She was the only one who didn't recognize how amazing this woman was. And she was the recipient of her generosity. So don't worry about if people don't see what you're doing. God sees what you're doing. And he turned it around for Ruth, didn't he? Right? Even when no one else appreciated her, he did. He wants us to be generous because that's the way he is with us. So give to God and give to others. Treat them to lunch. Buy them a thoughtful gift. I'm not sure what's wrong with our culture, but if you show up at someone's house for an event, take a gift for the host. I don't get that. It's like if you're under 40, I don't know what happened, but okay. <laughs> Let me just be your mom and tell you, take a gift with you. 
a little gift to tell them you appreciate them having you in your home. Be generous. Work hard, spread it around. I could end right there and you'd have plenty to do, wouldn't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I want to make sure that before we go, we see what God did in response to Ruth's hard work. Okay? Verse 17 to 23, we're not going to read it. I'm just going to skim really fast how we see what God did. Ruth 17 to, 2, 17 to 23. She gleans all day. She beats out the grain. She gets a lot of it. Verse 18, she takes it to Naomi, gives her her leftover lunch. Verse 19, Naomi's surprised. Asks where she gleaned and gets a blessing on that guy. Verse 20, Naomi tells Ruth Boaz is a relative and that she should take him up on his offer of a job. Verse 23, she says, I will. And she works the barley and the wheat harvests and stays with Naomi. Ruth's efforts get rewarded right here on this very day. Look how God rewarded her in this one portion of scripture. From this, we learn that point number three, we need to believe God rewards hard work. Believe God rewards hard work. Believe God rewards hard work. Before we get to the questions, I want to make sure you see that God responded when she worked hard. He saw what she did on this particular day and he responded. And we need to expect God to do the same for us when we work hard. By the end of the day, God had prompted Boaz, remember what I said, to go through his bundled, bundled groups of grain and say, okay, workers, I know you've worked really hard and you've put those together. I want you to take them apart and spread it around so she has more to gather. By the end of the day, that's what God had prompted Boaz to do, to reward her for her hard work. This is unheard of, and because of that, she got 20 to 30 times what she should have. Boaz prayed that God would reward her in verse 12, and in verse 13, she recognizes it and realizes what God had done. Boaz was white, like, not only was he at first excited to help her because of the story of what she had done for Naomi, but when he saw her working, he's like almost jumping up and down trying to be good to her, right? Go help her, give her more, right? Here's my lunch, here's some water, right? You know, by the time he sees her in action, he can't wait to reward her and be generous to her. Ruth believed that God would reward her. She expected God to do that, and he did. She saw, even in her understanding of the God of Israel, she was already seeing how people um, who were faithful to God were rewarded for it. I mean, she lived in the time of judges. Remember what her experience must have been like. She was seeing people do the wrong thing and get spanked for it. Even in her own family. The abandoned God, the abandoned the people of God in their moment of need, they took off for the easy route, with foreigners, no less, and then intermarried with them. And guess what? God spakes you when that happens. But when they repented, when they turned around and came back to Israel, God was starting to bring blessing to their life again. She was seeing it in living color right in front of her. She knew God would reward those who are faithful. We need to believe this too. We need to believe that God sees what we do in our homes. Think of your work right now. I don't know where you work. Think of it as maybe it's your kitchen, maybe it's your garage, maybe it's your cubicle, maybe it's your laptop, maybe it's your kid's playroom. Think of that place. God sees you in that place. He sees how hard you're working. He sees when you sacrifice. He sees when you say no to your own desires to do that well for him and for the people in that arena. He sees when you're proactive, when you're tireless, when you're positive, when you're deferential, when you're humble, when you're generous, and he will respond to you when you do that. The verse for this is Colossians 3, 23 and 24. 
which says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That was Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, ladies, whatever the work God calls you to do, do it with all your heart. That means be all in. Give it everything you've got. And he promises he will watch you and he will reward you. Some of us will get rewarded like Ruth. Within a timely manner, there'll be, you know, 30 or 40 pounds of grain sitting in front of you, okay? But some of us have to wait for the other side, for the new Jerusalem, but I promise you it's coming, regardless of which way it comes. Revelation 22:12 says, he's coming back soon and his reward is with him. It's promise. So you keep working hard. When you mess up, which I'm sure, trust me, <laughs> after a message like this, if there's nothing in your head that you've done wrong, <laughs> wow, you're my hero. Can I be your friend? <laughs> Will you come live at my house with me? Um, confess what you've done wrong and get up and try again and keep going and keep going and expecting God to see you and expecting God to reward you and don't care when that reward is coming. It doesn't matter when that reward is coming. All that matters is that you do what you're supposed to right now until he comes. There's a guy named Kirk Cousins. Kirk Cousins is a quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings. And he has a very odd rock statue in his yard. He puts it there for a very strange reason. The reason is he wants to remember that someday he's gonna die. Now, that might sound morbid to you, but before you judge him too harshly, let's think through his reasoning here. He's not ready to cash it in. In fact, he believes he's going to live to be 90. That's his plan, live to be 90. So he has diligently gathered 720 rocks in a jar, and he's put them in his backyard. 720 rocks. That is one rock for every month of a 90-year-old life. He's gathered one rock for every month, okay? Every month he takes a rock out of that jar and he puts it in his pocket. And this is what he says to himself. He says, once this month is over, this one is gone and I can't ever get it back. At the end of the month, he takes the rock out of his pocket and he adds it to a rock sculpture he has in his backyard. And he says it reminds him that his time on earth is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. He did this because a Bible study leader in his life and because of Psalm 90 verse 12, which says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Kirk says that this verse is about the importance of leaving a mark, making a deposit in other people's lives in a way that matters because life is coming to an end someday and we only have so many days left. Ladies, it's my hope that you walk out of her thinking, I wanna be a lot more like Kirk Cousins and a lot less like Jeff Miller. <laughs> I wanna be someone who is proactive, tireless, positive, deferential, humble, and generous like Ruth was, waiting for the hope that I have, waiting to enjoy the rewards that are sure to come to me. Let's pray. God, I wanna thank you for the women that are represented here. I know that you've given each one of them a unique task and you've given each one of them a unique set of people to serve, to serve under, to serve beside, to serve with. 
I know that they're going through different seasons of life and that they will continue to do that and that sometimes the jobs they had 10 years ago are not the jobs they have today. God, I pray that no matter what season they are in their life, that they would have gotten, yes, challenge from Ruth, but also encouragement from Ruth that they can do this in their little corner of the world, wherever it is. Thank you, God, that we don't do any of this alone and that forgiveness is available. It's available right this second. God, you know how many times I came to you and confessed my failure to not work well, to not be as tireless and proactive as I should have been in the last few months preparing this. I'm sure that my sisters, some of them feel the same way, and I just want to compassionately give them a hug in this prayer and say, that's okay, you can do it. God will pick us up from where we are and move us forward. Just don't stay where you are. God, I pray that Ruth would be the kick in the backside that all of us need to get up and work hard in the tasks and for the people you've given us and to expect that you will reward us when you come back and maybe even before that. Help them to go out and have a great time going through their quiet time and thinking about how they can apply these work ethic principles to their everyday life. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you guys just so thankful for the teaching that we're getting this weekend? Yes. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Prompts me to go out and work hard. Yes. And we're going to do that right now. You guys have some time to do your quiet time questions. So we hope you carve out some time, find a beautiful place on this campus to do that. And also, it might be a good idea to read chapter three. Just kind of acquaint yourself with what we're going to be learning tonight. Just read through that chapter yeah. uh, before we learn about that tonight uh, from Stephanie. And the... Um Retreat staff would love it if we would be on time to lunch. It's easier for them to get all the serving done if we're there at 12. So, so be there we'll at see 12. you all at 12. You're dismissed. Have a good quiet time.